Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. Uh, we're continuing our series through this book that we're calling A Time for Wisdom. And this week's focus is A Time for Wisdom in the Fear of the Lord. Now, uh, we all appreciated Carly and Jason and the team leading us in that last song. And if you're listening to the lyrics and you were stirred by the lyrics, uh, all I seek, all I ask, all I want is you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. If those words stirred in you and you said, yes, yes, that's my longing, that's my heart, then you already understand what we're going to be talking about this morning. You already understand the fear of the Lord. Because that, there, could be, there couldn't be a better summation of the fear of the Lord than a heart that simply cries constantly, all I want, all I ask, all I seek is you, is you. Sadly, so many people misunderstand the fear of the Lord. They think it has to do with being terrified or cowering before the God of the universe because he is harsh and severe and frightening. Now, trust me, if you don't know Christ, then yes, God will be severe and frightening, and we call you today to repentance and faith. But if we know Christ, or if we're open to receiving Christ and His finished work for us, then we need to realize that the fear of the Lord is something to delight in and something to seek. In Isaiah 11.3, we're told 750 years in advance of Jesus about Jesus. And we're told that His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Now, do you think Jesus was terrified of His Father? Of course not. Do you think Jesus cowered before his father? Of course not. Yet we're told that Jesus is defined as someone who delights in the fear of the Lord. Maybe there's some of us who are confused about the fear of the Lord and, and you're coming into God's presence at times cowering. Well, you have something in common with many, many people, even some famous people. Laurie and I had the privilege of going out to Mount Rushmore this summer. Uh, by the way, if you're ever going to national parks, there's this app called Gypsy. you got to download it. it. It tells you uh, where to go, where to stop, where to drive. It's pretty scary, actually. Somehow it is, it is connected to your GPS, and it knows exactly where you are. And it tells you when you're stopping and when you're going. But the point is around Mount Rushmore, Mount Rushmore was built in a certain way that you're supposed to approach it through this road that gives you various perspectives before you ever really get to Mount Rushmore. It was phenomenal. And then you, you get up close and you see Washington and Jefferson and Roosevelt and Lincoln. Amazing sight. Now, you may not know something about 
Teddy Roosevelt. Like, why would Teddy Roosevelt be up there? Well, first of all, because he was so into the national park system. He is one of the presidents mainly responsible for the national park system. But when Teddy Roosevelt was small, and he was raised in a Christian home, he was a, a godly man. When he was little, he was scared to death to go to the church. His, his mother tried to figure out why, and she discovered through talking to Teddy that he was frightened of something called the zeal. She didn't know what the zeal was, so she asked him, and, and he says, well, I don't know, but it must be lurking in the corners of the church because the pastor talked about it. I think it's some kind of big dragon or alligator or something, and it's going to eat me. Well, being a godly woman, she wanted to listen to her son and teach him, and so she got out the family concordance that lists all the words mentioned in the Bible with the verses. And she went through the concordance under the word zeal and started reading Teddy every single verse that mentioned zeal. She came to John 2, verse 17, and Teddy got all excited and said, wait, stop, that's it. And in the King James, this is what John 2.17 says. And his disciple remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. <laughs> True story. Teddy Roosevelt was afraid he was going to get eaten up by the zeal of the Lord. And many people, when it comes to the fear of the Lord, think similarly and it's not talking about cowering. It's talking about, well, we're going to talk about what it's talking about. It's talking about adoring God from a heart of humility and faith. We're going to look at various passages this morning where the fear of the Lord is mentioned. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. If, of course, you're able to stand, and we're going to be reading various Proverbs. They'll be up behind me on the screens uh, this is the word of the Lord. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 14, verse 2. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Now, be aware of the parallelism. Uh, Hebrew parallelism, it's two lines. The second line helps bring definition and clarity to the first line. So there in Proverbs 14, 2, fearing the Lord is contrasted with despising the Lord. So fearing the Lord means adoring the Lord. Proverbs 14, 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. You notice that every time the fear of the Lord mentioned, it's mentioned with a benefit. It's mentioned with a blessing. The fear of the Lord is something to delight in, not be afraid of. 
Proverbs 15, verse 33. By the way, I love hearing the pages turn. You know, there's something about bringing your Bible to church, turning to pages. I know I sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but there is something. Bring your Bibles, read the pages. There's something good about it. Plus, your kids get a chance to see you looking at the Word. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. So here we see the parallelism that fear the Lord means humility. Proverbs 16, 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Proverbs 23, 17, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. And Proverbs 28, verse 14, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So the parallelism there teaches us that fearing the Lord is maintaining a soft and tender heart toward God. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to grow in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. God, no matter where we are in our understanding of the fear of the Lord, would you teach us and would you make us into a people that properly fear you, love you, trust you, delight in you, adore you, obey you. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So in my studies of the fear of the Lord, uh, I've tried to come up with a definition that might help many of us understand just what it is we're talking about. Now, I'll find a way to post this on our website or Facebook or whatever, but, but here's what I would like you to know. The fear of the Lord is a conscious awareness of and delight in God's absolute claim on my life. Not just an awareness of, but a complete delight in the reality that God has absolute claim on my life as my creator, sustainer, redeemer, and friend. It's a wholehearted disposition, wholehearted meaning includes our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, and our choices, a wholehearted disposition before God of reverent, humble, loving, and trusting submission, surrender, and worship. It's an attitude of practicing the presence of God in every area of life, every moment of every day. And as we practice the presence of God and become aware of what it is to live in God's presence, that's how God creates and deepens and grows our fear of the Lord. So three dispositions of the heart where we'll find ourselves growing in the fear of the Lord. First of all, Practice God's presence stunned by His glory. Repeatedly through Proverbs, we see what's in Proverbs 1-7 or Proverbs 9-10. It goes something like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning 
of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What we learn here is that the fear of the Lord involves knowledge of the Holy One, knowledge of God, knowledge of the glory of God. Now, knowledge here doesn't mean rational knowledge alone. It doesn't mean gaining information. It means as you're learning about the glory of God, and what is the glory of God? It's the sum of all of God's attributes seen in totality as we sit before God in worship. And as we get to know this God, it's not just information. The word actually means intimacy. It's it's the way a husband knows a wife and a wife knows a husband. That kind of intimacy is the knowledge of the Holy One that is the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is intimacy with God based on being stunned by His glory, by His magnificence. It involves almost every emotion a human being can experience. Let me me give you a list of the kinds of things that are related to our humanity and the glory of God. These are some likenesses. It's it's like a creature before its creator. How, How would a creature respond to actually being physically before its maker, its creator. Imagine that kind of stunned life before that maker. It's the same as as the disposition of a subject before a king, a servant before a master, the destitute before a provider, a sinner before a Savior, the vulnerable before his or her protector, a subordinate before his or her absolute authority, an orphan before her adopter, the ignorant before the omniscient, the powerless before the omnipotent, the finite before the infinite, the helpless before the helper. All of these awarenesses are related to us becoming intimate with the glory of God. And when we become intimate with the, acquainted, uh, intimately with the glory of God, we become stunned by God's magnificence. And it changes our lives. Psalm 22, verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, he's talking about the church, glorify Him, and stand in awe of Him. That's the fear of the Lord. Being stunned by the glory of God, it's sitting in awe of God. Now let me ask you something. When is the last time you have felt stunned in the presence of God? When is the last time you've experienced awe in the presence of God? When is the last time you've been awestruck in your relationship with God? The fear of the Lord consists in a heart apprehension 
and an intimate acquaintance with the magnificence of the glory of God. And as you can imagine, that will bring upon us almost every emotion conceivable. Peace, humility, surrender, rest, reverence, joy, awe. I love the way that uh, Tolkien describes what is really the fear of the Lord using Gandalf as sort of a Christ figure. Gandalf is the, is the chief wizard, and Bilbo, of course, is the hobbit that discovered the ring of power, <clears throat> and it's kept Bilbo youthful, but it's become dangerous to Bilbo because he's getting too attached to it. It's becoming an idol to him, and so Gandalf counsels Bilbo to give up the ring and give it to his nephew Frodo. Well, Bilbo's been putting off giving Gandalf the ring, even though Gandalf has told him over and over and over. And finally, Gandalf says, one more time, give me the ring, Bilbo. And Bilbo turns, he turns violent and aggressive, and he says, why do I have to? You just want it for yourself. And suddenly, the, the scene around Bilbo becomes very dark, and Gandalf seems to grow about a hundred sizes bigger. And he cries out with a loud voice to Bilbo, Don't take me for some cheap conjurer of tricks, Bilbo Baggins! And Bilbo's shrinking and cowering at this point. And then Gandalf says, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. Trust me as you once did. And Bilbo runs to Gandalf, embraces him, and of course Gandalf embraces Bilbo. You see, the glory of God is in a sense frightening. But the fear of the Lord is intimate acquaintedness with the glory of the Lord that is for us. That results in us saying, I only want you. Practice the present stunned by His glory. Secondly, practice the present staggered by His power. Proverbs 16, 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. In other words, God is like a fortress. And we're so stunned by the power of God that we trust Him, we rest in Him, and we wait for Him. And then it goes on to say, and His children will have a refuge. In other words, if we walk in the fear of the Lord, staggered by His power, our children will take note of living in a household where the parents are staggered by the power of God. And then the children themselves will have refuge in God because they too will capture and cultivate the fear of the Lord. It goes on to say, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. God's power toward us protects us, guards us, First Peter 1 says, who through God's power are guarded by faith for a salvation ready 
to be revealed. And as we're staggered by the power of God, we trust Him in the midst of difficult situations. Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes by His power, parenthesis, all things to work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. In Exodus 14, verse 31, we're told that when Israel saw the great power of the Lord, they feared the Lord and put their trust in Him. I talked about the last time you were stunned in awe of the glory of God. When's the last time you've been staggered by the power of God? There are ways we can grow in the fear of the Lord. Psalm 33 gives us an example. Listen to this. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. God says, you want to grow in the fear of the Lord? You want, to, you want to increase your response to the staggering power of God? Just go outside at night and look at the stars and recognize God created every single one of them and he calls every single one of them by name. Now look, there's, there's different biblical views of creation that are allowable in a Bible-believing church. Your pastor happens to be one of those. And again, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily argue with people who think differently. But I happen to believe personally, and you may think naively, in a six 24-hour creation period. And here in Psalm 33, the Bible seems to teach that as well because it is staggering for God to create everything out of nothing, by the word of his power. There was no light, and God spoke, and there was the sun. And God spoke, and there were the stars. It goes on and says, uh, He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. God spoke, and there was land. God spoke, and there were the seas. God spoke, and the clouds were formed that held moisture for rain. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. If we would simply stop to reflect on how the power of God is staggeringly revealed to us every single day, every moment of every day, if we just open our eyes, then we would have a deeper fear of the Lord. And like Israel in Exodus 14, we would trust Him. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. But the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. That's not the way many Christians live today. We are a people that put so much trust in our own humanity. We are a people that put so much hope 
in human institutions. And God says it has the power of a spider web to stop a 10-pound boulder. It's worthless. So how staggered by the power of God are we as the people of God? You see, Abraham stopped being staggered by the power of God when he stopped believing God's promise and rather than waiting on God to supernaturally allow Sarah to become pregnant, Sarah and Abraham said, well, let's make it happen by our own human power and resources. And Abraham went into Hagar. Moses stopped being staggered by the power of God when he struck the rock instead of speaking to it the way God commanded See, Moses thought the anger of man could accomplish the righteousness of God. Moses thought that he could add some inflection that would make the people of God repent. He didn't treat the Lord as holy. He lost the fear of the Lord at that moment. And he wasn't trusting completely in the staggering power of God. Peter stopped being staggered by the power of God, when he cut off Malchus's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus said, put away your sword. Don't you know at any time I could call the Father to send ten legions, twelve legions of angels? And where have you stopped being staggered by the power of God in your life? Are you in a difficult marriage where there's no grounds for divorce, but you just want out? You've lost the fear of the Lord. You've stopped being staggered by the power of God. Where are you up all night long over your children because they don't seem to be seeking the Lord? Have you lost the fear of the Lord in that area? Have you stopped being staggered by the power of God? Tim Keller, who did a devotional on the Proverbs, asked this related to this topic. Would the people closest to you say you've changed in the past 12 months for the better? Would they say you're more loving, more joyful, more kind, more patient? See, those only happen if we're growing in the fear of the Lord. As we recognize and are staggered by His power. And then thirdly, not only do we need to be stunned by God's glory and staggered by His power to go in the fear of the Lord. Thirdly, we need to practice God's presence startled by His love. The fear of the Lord is being startled by the love of God. Look at Proverbs 16, 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Now, do you think he's talking about us? Of course not. We don't have the ability. We don't have the power. We don't have the resources to atone for our own sins. Solomon is saying, by God's steadfast love and by God's faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. In other words, it is God's justifying grace, His startling love 
that makes us right with him. And it is God's sanctifying love, his startling, supernatural, transforming power toward us in Christ that transforms our lives. Walking in the fear of the Lord is being startled by his love every moment of every day. Psalms 33, verse 18. Listen to this now. Listen to the parallelism. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love. Parallelism will change your life. If you begin to understand, that's how Proverbs and Psalms, for the most part, were written. The second line explains or clarifies the first line. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him. Okay? Who are those who fear Him? Second line. Those whose hope is in his unfailing love. So far removed is cowardice and cowering and being terrified before God. That it's exactly the opposite. The fear of the Lord is trusting in God's love when you least feel you deserve to trust in it. You want to fear God? then the very moments you feel you least deserve to be able to believe that God's startling love toward you has not diminished in Christ no matter what you've done, then you're living in the fear of the Lord. Psalm 147, verse 11, The Lord delights in those who fear Him. Who are those people? Those who put their hope in His unfailing love. You really want to bring delight to the heart of the Father? Then start resting continually in His love. Be startled by it every single moment of every single day. Psalm 30, verses 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you're feared. It doesn't say, with you there is majestic holiness, although that's certainly true. We've already covered that. But here it says, with you there's forgiveness, therefore you're feared. In other words, the more you experience forgiveness, the more you experience mercy, the more you experience grace, the more you're going to grow in the fear of the Lord. And the more you're going to be transformed by the gospel. We all remember uh, the book by Victor Hugo, uh, Les Mis, maybe you've seen the play, maybe you've seen the, the movie. We all know that part where Jean Valjean, who was a, a good man, a poor man, but also a confused man, he wanted to love his sister, and his sister's child was dying of starvation. So Jean Valjean broke into a bakery and stole a piece of bread and was thrown into jail, did hard time, and prison shut him down. Prison uh, caused him to become a hard man, no longer a good man a spiteful man, no more a kind man, a selfish man, no more an other-centered man. And he couldn't find anybody who would take him in or give him work or even feed him until he knocked on the door of a bishop. And the bishop, who was known to be kind-hearted, known for his fear of the Lord, Hugo spends a hundred pages on the bishop in his book. It's some of the best 100 pages of literature you'll ever read. And what you'll find out about the bishop is he was completely generous, and the one luxury he allowed himself was to eat off silver. So he served Jean Valjean his first dinner on silver. And that night, Jean Valjean, in his hardened state, stole the silver and ran away. The police captured him, brought him back to the bishop, and said, This fellow said you gave him the silver. 
And the bishop said, yes, I did. But Jean Valjean, I'm very angry with you. Why did you not take the silver sticks as well? I wanted you to have the, the silver candlesticks too. Did you forget to take them? And the police leave. And the startling love of the bishop breaks Jean Valjean's heart. And he's never the same again. The bishop bore and absorbed the loss that he incurred to bring Valjean forgiveness and grace. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. The fear of the Lord comes as we understand and respond to the gospel. That we have sinned and we deserve hell. And Jesus on the cross absorbed all of the cost of our sin. And he wants us to be so startled by that love that we're never the same. As we come to the table this morning, we actually experience or are promised these three things we've just covered that lead to the fear of the Lord. At this table, we see the glory of God. I mean, how could, how could simply bread and the fruit of the vine, how could it really mean anything? Well, the glory of God is present here. God promises that. And then we're staggered by power. God promises real supernatural transforming power as we come to this table in repentance and faith. And of course, there's startling love because we remember the death of Christ as long as we celebrate this table. Let's pray. God, we understand that these elements remain bread and the fruit of the vine, but we also recognize that you set them apart from their common use and you use them as means of grace to nourish us in the fear of the Lord. And so come, Holy Spirit, work in our lives. In Jesus' name.